Welcome to the Weight Inclusive Innovators Podcast. My name's Hannah Turnbull. And I'm Morgan Sinclair. We're two non-diet dietitians, entrepreneurs, and Enneagram 7s here to talk shop about the business side of things. From managing a team of clinicians, to building a cohesive brand, to figuring out how the heck to pay yourself, we get deep down in it talking about what it actually takes to start, run, and grow your weight-inclusive business. The good and the messy. We know your degree didn't include any business classes, at least not any applicable to what you're doing now as an entrepreneur. This is why we are on a mission to bring business education to other weight-inclusive clinicians. Say sayonara to all the hours spent on Google and hello to information that is actually relevant. Let's dive into today's episode. What's up, Weight Inclusive Innovator fam? We are back. Today, we're going to be chatting about taking insurance in your private practice and what how that? this is, oh, I know I'm so excited, and how this can grow and scale your business. This is something that Hannah is so passionate about and something that I know absolutely nothing about. So I will be interviewing Hannah and asking all of the questions about getting in network with insurance. But before we dive into today's episode, let's do our check-in. Hannah, what were your highs and lows of the week? As you know, I'm very excited for this episode, so I'm going to keep my check-in tight so that we have lots of time to talk about something I'm very passionate about. But my high of this week is if you listen to our last episode that came out last week, we did a podcast panel discussion with other business coaches, and it was honestly so inspiring. I felt like I was around my people. I just am in awe of what people in the clinician space are able to do and build. And gosh, I'm going to go back and listen to that episode a couple of times because I feel like I got a lot of nuggets, even being on the panel with people. So I'm really excited. If you haven't listened, highly recommend, especially if you are like, let's say a group practice owner and you're interested in doing business coaching one day, which PS, we need more business coaches in the group practice space. Um, I'd love to send people to you. So I hope it's an inspiring episode. If you ever do desire to offer biz to biz things, you know, Morgan and I know firsthand how being a multi-passionate entrepreneur feels and wanting to do all the different things. So if that's of interest to you, I think you'll get a lot out of the episode. And even if you're just building your business as well, it was, it's such a good conversation. Such a good conversation. Definitely on my highs too. Absolutely. And then my other high is it finally feels like my group practice is catching up on cash flow. Yay! So good. It only took the first quarter. And I share that just to normalize it for other private practices or group practices that take insurance. There's just a slowness to the beginning of the year, and there's just cash flow issues, and it sucks, man. So feels good to like not be in the hole waiting to catch up. Oh, I'm sure that feels so freaking good. I know that's been on your, your lows the last few weeks. So I am very excited that it has moved to a high of the week that you are getting some money back. (laughs) Yes. And here's to knocking on wood that hopefully no giant expenses come through to where I'm in the hole again. Um, All the fingers crossed. Thank you. Thank you. And then of course there's no high without a low. I am just feeling behind and it's in general in my business. Like there's so many things I want to do that I just can't find the time or energy for in this moment. And I, I think I try to take on too much. I can't even believe it. (laughs) Um, but yeah, well, one thing that's on my mind in particular is taxes. I've not filed my taxes yet. Luckily my accountant filed an extension because we're still trying to figure out some things with investments. So yeah, I just, I'm the kind of person that likes to have something checked off. It's like, I don't have to think about it anymore. And I just feel like taxes has been this ongoing thing for me. So I'm hoping to get that wrapped up in the next couple of months, which I know sounds ridiculous, but y'all, as you grow your businesses and then you have multiple businesses and then you're like, trying to do all these investment things. You'll see why it takes so long. It is, it's going to get done, but it is a low. Cause it's just like in the back of my mind stirring. It's a beast dealing with taxes. I think this is probably, so my dad's an accountant 
And so he has always done my taxes for me in the past, but it's always just been like my personal taxes. Right. And so I gave him everything for all of my businesses this year. And I, based on his (laughs) response, I'm pretty sure it'll be the last year he's doing my business taxes for me because that's just, he doesn't work as an accountant anymore. He just still holds on to his CPA. Um, and so we'll forever be grateful for him doing my personal ones, but I'm definitely going to have to hire an accountant or convince my bookkeeper who is an accountant to do everything for the biz. Dang. I was just about to say way to cut a big cost out of your business, having your dad do your taxes. Like dang it's it. Been great. I know it's been great for the last few years. Uh, yeah, but you know, with growth comes growing pains and that is just one of them. So totally, it sure totally is. hear you on the taxes, taxes front. It's it's so worth it to have somebody do it for you though. Like I think you'll find when you do have to pay for it, it's worth the cost every time. Oh, absolutely. I uh, was trying to do my form 1040. Is that the one where you like estimate your quarterly taxes? I think so. In order to know and like literally pulled it up and had no clue. And I was talking to my friend, Emily, and she was like, oh yeah, like my husband helped me figure that out. And so I was like, can he help me? Can I buy him some coffee? And so I literally went and bought him a bag of coffee because he loves coffee as much as I do. And he like walked me through it. And I was like, God bless y'all. Thank God someone else can explain this to me because government documents are difficult to figure out, especially when it comes to money. Oh yeah. And then it's really scary too. They're like, here's what you need to do, but we're not going to exactly tell you how you better not fuck this up or we're coming for your business. Like that's the kind of energy those documents give me. It is a hundred percent. Yeah. That's like a, it's, oh man, it's rough. What are your highs and lows this week? So obviously our podcast collaboration definitely has to be a high. This was like the week of podcast recordings because we're kind of thrown out of whack with our podcast schedule. So in the last seven days, I've done three podcast recordings, including this one. So this one, the podcast uh, collaboration. And then I was on my friend Kristen Ailes podcast, which is the Wilder Wellness podcast. So that should be coming out soon. But we talked about listening to your gut when running a business, how body image and running a business are intertwined. She is a therapist in Oregon and also runs retreats for women wanting to get, or I don't know if it's just women, folks wanting to get out into the wilderness and not let their body size stop them. So 10 out of 10 recommend checking out her business and her podcast. She's incredible. I wish y'all could see my face. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, that sounds amazing. And we'll definitely link the podcast episode in the show notes. Um, I want to go on a retreat. I would like to do that. She's hosting one yeah. soon. <gasps> Up in Oregon. You'd love her. She's also an Enneagram seven. I know. God. I know. We love sevens. Well, we love all the numbers for different reasons, but sevens just slap for us since we are sevens. Well, especially when it involves adventure and getting outdoors. So anyway, she's great. Absolutely loved recording that episode with her. That being said, it's just the name of the game this past week. I have done so many social networking things in this last week that my social battery is like on empty. And I feel like that rarely happens, but all good things. Like I had my friend Kareen in town. Uh, I had lots of evening plans for some reason. I just like everyone wanted to meet this week. So I was like out at happy hours and then my I had family come into town. So we were at all the breweries this weekend. And so it was all like my, I feel so full because I got to spend so much time with so many people but holy smokes, I have not had enough alone time. And so going into this week, I am tired and I am not motivated to do anything. Morgan, I noticed you keep getting into this space. Remember the rodeo week? (laughs) Oh my God. You're right. This honestly, the last like six weeks have just been like nuts. But I have a hard, now that things are open, I have a hard time saying no. I just love being around people. I just need to like, just like dedicate like one night a week to be like yeah. laying on my couch. Started watching Bridgerton this weekend. That felt really oh. good just to rest and relax. Love that for you. Yeah. I, that's what I was thinking. My brain was like, Ooh, you're catching up from the last two years. You're going in full Enneagram seven and extrovert mode. hundred percent. That's exactly <laughs> literally what's happening right now. And 
it feels so good. Like, oh, it feels so good to be able to be around people and like meet new people and like meet the friends of friends that I haven't gotten to meet the last few years. And just, I'm so grateful for it. Okay. But do you feel awkward sometimes? Cause I feel really awkward meeting people now. I'm like an ambivert. Ambivert? I thought I thought I used to be extroverted, but I'm very like 50, 50. Mm. And I think that's been a result of the pandemic. Actually, maybe I'll start coming out of my shell again, but I love being by myself. Although when I'm by myself, I'm usually like listening to a podcast. So it doesn't feel like I'm by myself. And I've noticed meeting people through friends. Like I went to the park um, and had like a little picnic with some friends and there were some people I had never met there. And I just felt like awkward. <laughs> like so- Yeah. I think Texas definitely opened up a little bit before Colorado did. So I feel like I've had a few, (laughs) few extra months. It was awkward at first though. Like when things started opening back up and I was like, how do I socialize? How do I do this? We're good now. We're feeling, we're, we're, we're back on track. So I I'm sure that'll come eventually with you too. That's what I'm hoping because I really am a people person and I love people. I love like hearing how people's brains work and their different stories. Like that's what I live for. And so it feels bad to be like, uh, uh, uh. um, and it, I think it's, we're all awkward right now. So just shout out to you listeners. If you're feeling awkward, just want to normalize that. I feel yeah. awkward as fuck right now. Yeah. It's, it's gonna, I think it's going to take some like relearning on, on everyone's part. Yeah. I feel that ready to dive in today's episode. Let's do it. So taking insurance is such a divided topic in the eating disorder space. And honestly, a conversation that I'm so excited to dive into with you. I was never in private practice, so I, I, you know, I don't have a super strong opinion, but I don't think there's a right or wrong. I think every business owner has to do what's best for them. And I think clinicians avoid taking insurance because it's just like one extra step they have to do. And no one wants to deal with insurance anyway. Like it's pretty shitty to deal with insurance. And so I can see how that they would be adverse to like starting the process, but you're really passionate about taking insurance. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am. And I agree with all of that, Morgan, even as someone who only works, my business coaching is only with group practices to take insurance one, because I don't know how to market a private practice that doesn't take insurance. Like that's, I've not done that. So I'm not going to pretend like I can coach someone on that. So that's just a side tangent of make sure when you're hiring a business coach, they actually do the thing that you want to do and not just like, oh yeah, I could probably help with that. Like they actually need to have done it and gone through it. So I think that every business owner does have to make their own decision. And I think that insurance is a pain in my ass. And it's an and situation. I'm thinking of act right now, acceptance and commitment therapy of just holding both things. Yep. I might've butchered that therapist. So let me know if I fucked that up and mixed it up with something else, but insurance is hard. They're a pain in the ass. It's an extra expense for your business and it is objectively more accessible for people to use you if you take insurance. And I think there's a lot of ways to make your practice accessible. I know a lot of people offer like pro bono and low sliding scale, which I think is awesome as well. But overall, I'll say our private practice, our group practice, Nourish Colorado, 85% of our clients are insurance-based. And we have over a hundred people come through our practice every week. So I don't know if we would be to that capacity as soon as we were without taking insurance. Yes. Well, you touched on a lot of uh, really incredible things. I have a list of questions for you if you're ready to uh, be on the receiving end of all of the questions. And I'm sure more will come up as we go through this. Yes. Put me in the hot seat. I'm ready. Oh, I'm so ready for this. Okay. So before we dive into all of the like ins and outs of taking insurance, I would love to know what was your journey whenever you decided to start taking insurance for your practice and like, why was that so important for you? Absolutely. So I like to preface going back to school whenever I was working on my dietitian degree, we had one class on private practice. I don't even remember what they covered, but I remember they handed us this packet that had like CPT codes in it. Um, which is for those who don't know, it's part of billing. And so 
Procedure codes. Exactly. So basically the service you're providing, which for dietitians, we provide the MNT, medical nutrition therapy for therapists. They offer a variety of different things. Um, so was handed that packet. I looked through it and I like turned my nose up and I was like, Ugh, I'm never, ta- I'm never like doing private practice. This isn't something I need to know. I'm going to work at a treatment center, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward to today. Totally an insurance nerd. I'm shocked that you had a class that mentioned private practice in undergrad. It was one and it was very brief and I can't tell you what it said, but I guess it is a starting point. It is a starting point. Okay. Yes. We want to see more of that for any dietetic professors, advisors listening, like please add in entrepreneur uh, track. Thanks. Um, So I looked at it. I was like, nope, don't want to deal with this. And then when I started my private practice, which came from starting a blog first and realized I like talking about intuitive eating, weight inclusive care, social justice, I it was a no brainer to me to figure out insurance. Part of it was I saw other people in the field doing it, which I was like, oh, they figured it out. So can I. Side note, I think that thought can be really helpful at times and also really toxic at times of like, they did this, so I can too. It really depends on like the energy you bring to that. But for me, in this case, I saw their insurance providers out there doing eating disorder work. And I was like, oh man, I got to figure this out because my thought process was that's free money, (laughs) which I know sounds silly, but it takes the burden off of the client or they have like a copay or after they meet their deductible, whatever. And then insurance covers it. So it was a no brainer to me. And just thinking about all the different healthcare professions, doctors, dentists, PTs, OTs that take insurance. It just made sense of having a healthcare service like treating eating disorders be accessible by using insurance as much as I could control. That's kind of how I started and the why. And for me, I'm someone who's like, okay, insurance, got it. I just got to like dive in and start. So I didn't really have any steps per se. I will say, um, which I referenced in another episode, I did take uh, the Inspired to Seek private practice course, which is really awesome. We'll link it in the show notes. And that really helped me get started. Haley and Monica are incredible. Shout out to them if they're listening. Um, And that really helped me get started with insurance. It's a values thing for me of access to care, being able to treat people that I otherwise wouldn't be able to come see me. People pay for insurance anyway. Like I know for me, whenever I look for a provider for something, I want to use my insurance if I can. I'm always looking at in-network people first. And then from a business standpoint, it allowed me to scale and grow my business, which I I couldn't not have imagined that without insurance, but knowing what I know and going through it and seeing other private practices that are only private pay and building a group, we were able to expand faster and with a lot of quality still. And I think that's a trope that people say about insurance of like, oh, well, people take insurance because they can't get clients otherwise, which is just false and makes me really mad. (laughs) So yeah, taking insurance, it truly is about access to care for me. And also as a business owner, it does have to feel sustainable and be paid fairly for me to accept them. What an incredible journey. Thank you so much for sharing a glimpse into to how you got there. I am so curious about, and we could talk about this now or another time about like the process of taking insurance because I know, well, I mean, we'll dive into that in today's episode, but I know like I've even talked to a handful of clinicians down here in Texas. And I think there's just so much difference within states as well, because I know some group practices that have fought to get paid fairly here in Texas and it just doesn't happen. And like, that sucks. 100%. Yes. That's a really good point. Insurance is good when it's good. And when it's shit, it's shit. So I know there's plenty of states. I think Michigan and Florida are two states that really fucking suck for insurance. Um, Like they don't cover dietitian services. They don't let dietitians be in network. Like it's, this brings up a bigger issue with insurance if there's no consistency and like they have their very arbitrary rules. So 
I'm an insurance fan because it works for my practice in Colorado has really good, um, insurance payers and benefits for folks, but I totally empathize with people who have been, um, whatever the opposite of price gouged is just lowballed, lowballed for their rates. Um, I know plenty of dietitians who started with insurance and then their business was going in the shitter because they weren't getting paid enough. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm totally with that of like, if they don't pay fair, you literally can't. And then also sometimes in some States insurance doesn't let you in network with some of them. Like they say that their panels are full Mm -hmm. or they're not accepting new, Mm -hmm. which pro tip, please always push back on that and keep pushing back and ask them when a timeline is of when they're going to accept new providers in network. It's just very arbitrary and very frustrating. And that's why like, I always go back to, I understand if people don't take this and for the people who can, and it really supports their business, fucking do it. Yeah. That's what I've heard a lot in Texas is like, oh, our insurance panels are full. We have these other dietitians that can see eating disorders. And then they're definitely not eating disorder clinicians. Yes. (laughs) Oh my God. That is the most frustrating thing. Yeah. That's how people with eating disorders end up at a practice who's been established for 20 years, which is great for them. But when they're selling eating disorder work and treating the O word or doing weight loss, it's just infuriating. It's so infuriating. And it's all like, it's politics. It's politics having to do with insurance companies. It's fucked up. It is fucked up. So knowing that states are different, you do quite a bit of coaching with other providers that I imagine are in many other states. Whenever you're talking to them and doing coaching with them, what are the biggest fears that you see come up when it comes to either starting the process of taking insurance or being in network with insurance providers? That's a really thoughtful question. And I appreciate naming fears to start because I think that's what holds a lot of people back from being insurance providers is they're afraid of figuring out how to do it. They're afraid of dealing with it. They're afraid of not getting paid. And those are all very valid and all of those things can happen. And so I think that's, what's great about offering insurance consulting is I can kind of walk people through what to expect, how to do it, what to look out for, because those fears are real. Insurance is no fucking joke. And I just think there's also nowhere you can go to learn about it. Um, I know there's some dietitians who are doing some stuff in the space, but there's no like, for example, Cigna, who's an insurance company. They don't have like, hey, let me show you how to bill and how to like do this ethically. They don't teach you shit. They're just like, you want to be a network? We'll think about it or no. So yeah, I think the biggest fear is figuring out how to do it and then also not getting paid, which I want to normalize. It is the upfront work for being an insurance provider is a lot and it takes time to learn the systems and how to bill and when claims get rejected, how to deal with that. But once you have your systems up and running and you learn about the insurance contracts in your area you start to get the swing of it and then it becomes nothing. And I know a lot of EHRs like simple practice and practice better do a great job of making billing easy, easy for folks. So that's super nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Those fears are definitely there. Like I'm not in private practice and like, those are still my fears. And I was like, I'm never going to have to deal with insurance because I'm not, like, I don't have a private practice, but like my heart starts racing when I think about like those fears related to to taking insurance and and what goes into it. Absolutely. And then there's really scary things like clawbacks, which is when insurance was like, oops, we overpaid you or oops, this person didn't actually have benefits. So we're going to take this money back. One, there should be parity laws in your state to protect from that. If there's not, I would definitely go after the insurance commissioner in your state and be like, why don't we have this protection? And then also unfortunately, if that happens, then it's on the client to pay for visits. So I say that not to cut a burden on clients or screw them over or anything. It's just, we have really intense, detailed consent forms for using insurance that really lay out, like, we're going to do everything on our end to try to get your visits covered. We care about this. It's important. And if they don't cover, 
the client is responsible. Like we still have to get paid for our time that we spend with people and our work and emotional labor and things. So, you know, the goal is to get insurance to cover. And if something were to happen, like a clawback, it falls on the client, unfortunately. Never heard of a clawback before. It's very interesting. It's very scary. Very scary. Very scary. A clawback has never happened to me. (laughs) Knock on wood. But I've seen it happen to other providers. And then you have to hire a lawyer depending on how much the cost is. And it can get messy. So it's not super, super common. I want to reiterate that. When I talk about these topics, I like to be real, but I also don't want to scare people away from doing it. That's not my intention here, but I just want to let people know what to expect or what they can, you know, what they might deal with. We love transparency over here on the Weight Inclusive Innovators pod. So with all business decisions that we have to make, there's always going to be pros and cons of making the decisions that we do. So what would you say is the pros of taking insurance? What is your favorite part about being able to take insurance in your practice? Yes. I can't just choose one favorite part because there's a lot of benefits to doing this. From a value standpoint, like I said, access to care is really important to me. I want to serve people who, anybody who needs it. And I feel like if there isn't insurance as an option, then you're only serving a certain percentage of people who can afford to pay out of pocket, even if they have out of network benefits. And like, I don't, that's not the population I want to serve. Appreciate that we do serve that population and they're great. um, People who are affluent and have money, but I also want to be accessible to people who don't because oftentimes there are people who like, just don't have access to a lot of things. And if they can have an awesome clinician who cares about them and is helping them with their relationship with food so they can have a better quality of life. Like that's what I want. So from a business standpoint, my favorite part about this is you can get paid really close to your rate, if not right at your rate. So I know some people, and this is true with some insurances that they lowball, but in reality, there's a lot that don't and they pay really well. And it's awesome. Um, They can also pay really consistently too and cover a lot of sessions for clients. So we actually get to see people at our clinically recommended amount. So people can see us one to two times a week, depending on what's going on. And insurance will cover if they have benefits, which is great. And then you can fill people's caseloads faster. So that's been part of the growth and scaling in my business and being able to hire so many dietitians is insurance. Like we just have a bigger market that we can support. And so that means growing our business. So yeah, those are my pros of taking insurance. My favorite things. Love all of that. What's the hardest part about taking insurance? (sighs) Man, got to let out a big sigh for that one. Insurance is expensive to take. So not only do you sometimes get a little bit of a pay cut, like they don't always pay at your rate, My rule of thumb is if they pay 80% of your rate, I think that's pretty good. Um, It's an added expense from that way of it reduces profits. And it's also an expense of hiring a biller, using billing systems that cost money, things like that. So it's just, it has to be accounted for in your business. It's also really, really tough to get started with your systems. So as someone who... You used to say they're not organized, but it's working on that. If you're an insurance provider at your practice and you're going to do your own billing, having the system set up and really getting that down, it's messy and it's hard. um, But once you hit your flow, it's great. You just have to be willing to go through that messy bit. And sometimes there can be cash flow issues. And if you heard my check-in and my check-in like, a few times back on the pod, I'm always talking about how we're having cash flow issues, which can be negated by having a good cash nest egg. So having an emergency savings, that's exactly what it's for is filling the gap while you wait to get paid from insurance because shit happens, or you can have a line of credit as well. So that means that you can, if you're afraid of not making payroll for your team, you could get a line of credit and then just pay that off when you get the money. Um, You can typically get them for like 
0% interest. So it's just nice to have that. I've never had to use a line of credit. Thank goodness. I actually don't have one in this moment, but I do see a lot of group practice owners get one to support when there is cash flow issues. And then insurance can be hard to work with. Like we said, they can lowball rates. Um, they come up with arbitrary things depending on the plan. Like there's one insurance who covers one visit a year. And I'm like, dude, we treat eating disorders. What do you mean? One visit a year that doesn't do shit. So, and also there's a really big gap in knowledge around clients using their insurance. And I think there's this assumption of, oh, here's my insurance card. Like the, the dietitians will figure it out or like the group practice will figure it out. And it's like, no, we got to check your benefits because, which is another expense if you have someone checking your benefits, but we're as a practice that's about to start having somebody check our benefits instead of putting it on the client, I think it's going to be worth the cost to have everybody on the same page and know what to expect because there's nothing worse than expecting to have your weekly nutrition visits covered and then getting a bill because they weren't covered. So yeah, that can be a hard part that there's just not guaranteed coverage. And it's, it's really hard to tell unless you check benefits. Yep. All the pros, all the cons having to hold space for it all. I feel like that was a pretty good recap of taking insurance, what to look out for. But I know one thing that you and I really want the listeners to get out of this episode is like tangible things they can do if they are interested in taking insurance and what to do when they're in that process. So if someone wants to explore taking insurance, what is the best first step that they can take? Yes. So before we make any decision in our business, hopefully we're doing some market research. So I always recommend when people reach out to me to do consulting, um, when they're trying to figure out what insurance is to contract with, I always say, do research in your area. And this is really important because we, like we talked about earlier in the episode, it's really different state to state. Um, it's really different national plans versus HMOs, which are more local plans in certain networks. So it's really helpful to know what you can expect in your area. And when you look at other dietitians or therapists websites and you see what insurances they take, that can give you kind of a starting point of what you might explore. I would say most of the time it's pretty safe. If you see someone taking in the insurance that it's a good one to be in network with, but at times it's not so definitely still want to be wary and do your research as far as like getting a fee schedule from insurance, seeing what your rate will be, all that good stuff. I would also say that starting with one insurance and going from there, especially if you're a solo private practice, that's great. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. It can be, I'm just going to do Blue Cross Blue Shield, or I'm just going to do Aetna, whatever insurance makes sense to you starting with one. Really good insight. I feel like that's, that tends to be the case here. And again, I don't know if it's because it's difficult to get into insurance, but there's one insurance that I know quite a few people in Texas take, and they have had decently good experiences with that. So once they've done their market research, figure out what insurance plan they want to, or what insurance they want to contract with, they've done the research now what? Like, what do they need to keep in mind? Is there like going through, I guess, negotiating? What, like, yeah. what does that look like? I don't even know what question to ask because I have no clue what the process looks like. Yes. It can be quite a tedious process where you have to get together a lot of different numbers and things. So I'll give a brief overview. Hopefully it makes sense to people or they can kind of Google what I reference. But um, if you don't already have, which you should, if you're a business, you do need an EIN number, which is basically an employer identification number. And that's just utilized with your insurance contracts so that the IRS can see where you're getting paid from. That's really important. It should, you should just need one for your business. Um, another thing you're going to need is your NPI, which is your national provider identifier. And everybody has one. It's just one number that's attached to your license. And that's how insurance is going to know who provided the service or who is supervising the service provided. That's a whole different level of stuff. Supervisory billing. We won't get into that today because that's next level shit, but everybody needs to have an NPI. From there, 
you are going to do, or you're going to set up a CAQH profile, which I can't even tell you what CAQH stands for, but basically it's the hub that all insurances will reference to get like your mailing address, where your office is, what your license is, all the information that they need for your insurance contracts. And then you do the application for the insurance company. So whatever one you choose to start with, you put in the application, follow their steps. They're all different. Some of them you have to call. Some of them, it's like a quick three-minute online application. And what you can expect is, and this is the biggest kicker, it does take 60 to 90 days, sometimes more, for your contracts and credentialing to come through. So if you're looking at scaling your business, it's really important when you're hiring to kind of get that timing to where, where you want it to be. So we often have folks stay at their jobs or work another job while they wait for their contracts to come through. That way they can hit the ground running when they're ready to leap over. And yeah, we've got it down to a science now. The other pieces are you will need a system and that is a trial and error. I don't think there's a good one way to do it because everybody's brains work so differently and it really has to be what works for you. It can get a little confusing with insurance because like, let's say you see somebody January 1st, you submit the claim for January 1st. You don't find out what the benefit is until mid-February because it takes about four to six weeks for the first claim to go through. And then you'll get told if there's a copay owed, if there's a deductible, or if it's completely covered. And then if there's a copay or deductible, which a copay is when the client owes a portion of the visit. And a deductible is when the client has to pay for the whole visit until the deductible's met. Then we have to go back and charge the client, but then they get confused of why am I getting billed in mid-February? What was this visit for? And it was for the January 1st visit. So it can get messy for clients. It can get messy for tracking. And I think the best thing to do is just to try to stay on top of it in a way that makes sense. And then your insurance can send paperwork, letting clients know what to expect. So letting them know, First claim to go through takes about four to six weeks. As soon as we know what your insurance is going to cover or what you owe, we'll shoot you an email or we'll charge your card on file if you consent. It's a lot to think about going through, but such good insight. I am so thankful you're sharing all this. What did you use to track when you first started? Just like a like an Excel doc, a Google Sheet? Oh, Yeah. I used an Excel doc. I still do at times because we just have some finicky things um, with billing and billing to the capacity that we do in my practice. There's just always something that needs to be looked at or um, yeah, things we like to track. Some of it is KPIs, which is great. Um, Important to do with insurance stuff, but yeah, just an Excel spreadsheet, putting like client names or initials. If you have G Suite, then it is HIPAA compliant, but it's still probably best practice to just use initials in some way to identify the clients to not mix them up. Cause obviously every client has different initials. So maybe you're using like half of their names for tracking that. And then you're tracking date of service. You're tracking what you found out their copay or deductible to be. You're tracking when the deductible is met. You are crossing off when you have charged the client so that you don't get confused. And that's why I always say it's really messy, but it's something that you figure out as you go. And then you hit your stride with. Incredible. I have a speed round of questions for you that have come up throughout this episode. Ooh, I love a speed round. Can I add one last thing? Oh, absolutely. I was saying about the billing sheets. So just for background, I did my own billing when I was in solo practice for a bit. And then I was like, fuck this. And this was before I found out about simple practice. And I was like, screw this. I'm hiring a biller. And so I have been working with a biller ever since especially as a group practice, I just feel like it's so important to not be pulled in so many directions. And because billing is such a big thing to have somebody that you trust to hand that off to is so worth the cost. So I just want to add that caveat of I'm not currently doing my own billing. If I ever needed to step in because my biller got sick or something happened, I could do it. But otherwise, nope, don't want to. Can do it. Don't want to. I mean, as a group practice owner, you're, there's so many other things for you to think about. So it makes total sense to delegate that to someone else. Yes. Delegate that shit. 
So I have a speed round of questions that came up while you were answering all of these questions. Love it. You ready for them? I'm ready. Let's hear it. Okay. My first one was, or is, you mentioned a fee schedule. What's a fee schedule? A fee schedule is something that either comes in your contract or you have to ask for separately that describes the procedure codes that you're going to bill and how much you should get paid for it. So for dietitians, we use 97802 and 97803 the most. So what you would want to do is search the fee schedule for those codes and see what you're going to charge or what you're going to get paid. And what's important with dietitian billing with those codes is it is in units. Like you don't just do one unit of that code. You're going to do units based on how long you saw the client. So I know typically in the eating disorder space, people either do 45 minutes or they do a therapy hour, which is 53 minutes. That is the lowest amount of time that you can see a client for to be able to bill four units, which the more units you bill, the more you get paid. And so if you're doing PS, please be sure to be really intentional with the amount of time in an appointment. Insurance will come after you for that. And that's putting you in a situation where they could claw back if they find out you're doing shorter visits and billing more. So billing kind of works in 15 minute increments. So if you're doing the the therapy hour, again, 53 minutes is the lowest. We kind of shoot for 55 at our practice. Then you can bill four units. Yeah. So that's the importance of having a fee schedule before you sign a contract, because if you didn't know your fee and let's say they were paying you $2 per unit, that's very inappropriate and not worth your time. I've never heard of it that crazy low, but you don't want to sign something that you don't know what you're getting into. Is the fee schedule determined by insurance or is there room for negotiation? Good question. So it's really based off of Medicare. So Medicare is kind of the the trailblazer, the thing to reference that insurance companies reference when setting fees and things. So um, Medicare's fee schedule is open to the public. It's the same for everybody because it's government. So you can go check that out. Basically, your fee should be close to that. Sometimes the way it'll be worded in fee schedules too is it'll say like, oh, you will get 80% of the Medicare fee schedule for those rates. So yeah, if you want numbers, just go ahead and reference it. We'll link it in the show notes to be able to find that. But yeah, it is predetermined by insurance, especially as the starting point for contracts. You can ask for annual fee increases from some insurance companies, which we've been able to successfully do for one insurance company, which has been really nice. So I think a lot of people get caught in the mindset of they get stuck with whatever fee, which can be true at sometimes, or insurance chooses when they're going to do the fee increase, but some you can request a fee increase. Awesome. Good to know. You mentioned that if someone's exploring taking insurance that you, that they should look at different people in their area to see what, do that market research, see what everyone else is taking. Would you recommend choosing a plan that other people or choosing an insurance that other people take because it seems like it would be a pretty good fee payout? Or would you recommend choosing a different insurance to diversify yourself? Ooh, great question. So if someone's taking insurance, you can pretty much guarantee they're only doing it if it's worth their time. And once you start one and figure it out, that's when you start looking into others. It's like, oh, how else can I do this? So if somebody's not in network with an insurance, there's probably a reason. So I would actually take that as information of, I can still look into this and I'm going to acknowledge there's no other providers in network with this. So either they're not taking providers or there's something shady here. So I would do what other people are doing, which I know sounds weird, but there's no scarcity of clients. We know the prevalence of eating disorders and people who need to heal their relationship with food or who need therapy for the therapists listening. Like it's really not the place to diversify yourself, you know? So you may diversify yourself in the niche you're treating and the people you want to work with and how you do your website and your copy. But when it comes to insurance, it's actually really indicative of how well they treat clinicians if they're in network with them. Good to know. You were talking about MPIs or national provider identification numbers. That's what MPI stands for, right? National provider. Identification. That sounds right. Cool. That sounds right. We'll go with that. 
I know that a practice has to have an MPI and a provider has to have an MPI. What's the difference when it comes to insurance? Yeah. So a provider, let's say you're in your own private practice, you're going to have an NPI one, which is an individual NPI. And that's actually sufficient for billing for just one person. When you become a group, you'll want to get an NPI two, which is basically a group national provider identifier. And if you have a group contract with insurance, which makes it a little bit quicker for people to get a network that come to your practice, and then you can just bill under your clinic, that's when you would bill under the NPI too. Gotcha. Very helpful. And another note on that as well is, again, this is a more complex thing for another day, but if you're doing supervisory billing, which has to be in your contract and given permission for from insurance, you can bill for people under the supervisory provider's NPI before their net before their contract comes through, which is really nice when we know how long the contracts take. But again, it's not every insurance company. They don't all allow it. So you have to look at your individual contract. I also recommend doing a paper trail if you do ask insurance, like get an email thread going to figure out those things. Such good tips. And that's really helpful to know that a supervised, supervisee, supervisor, would you Supervisory call it? billing. Supervisory. <laughs> like these are two separate words combining. Yeah. <laughs> good to know. Good to know. My last speed round question for you is you hired a biller. What are things to look for when you're trying to find a biller? And like, how would you go about hiring someone? This is a really good complex question because one, I feel like there's a shortage of billers right now. So entrepreneurs out there who are very detail oriented and want to learn about insurance, medical billing is a very needed thing right now. And you can make very decent money doing that. So you're welcome for the business idea. (laughs) But (laughs) nutrition billing in particular is a little bit more complicated than therapy billing. So for therapists out there, and dietitians really finding a biller by recommendation from someone who really likes their biller is the best way to do it. Chances are they have a fair rate. Chances are they have a good experience and they're getting paid consistently and accurately. So that's always my number one tip is get it as a referral from someone. Again, look at those practices that are taking insurance, see who does their billing, see if you can connect with them. The other piece is there is a lack of dietitian billing people right now. Either they don't fully understand, especially like the eating disorder space, but people just don't have availability for billing. Like I'm, I'm hitting that block with a lot of my business coaching clients right now. And that's where I recommend if you can, and this would be a cost saving way to do it is hiring someone in-house and training them to do your billing. And I think this is a long game thing of, you know, your systems, which is good. Like you should know your systems as a group practice owner. You don't need to do the day in day out, but if you needed to step in, in an emergency, you're able to do that. And then you're able to train someone who's very detail oriented and will do a good job and learn your systems. And then you can pay them a really fair admin rate to take over from there. That's my other advice too. I always tell people to have your admin and your biller separate because billing is a back end job. And I feel like admin work is a front end job in your business. And so you really don't want to mix the two because billing is such a big thing in itself that needs checks and balances systems. Great answer. Yes. I feel like I could talk about billing forever. I've um, had two billers so far and they're both great. And I feel really lucky. I'm waiting for my current biller to open up some spots so I can send my business coaching clients to her Um, because there's just such a, people will try to hire people who say they can do billing and then it's a shit show. So Mm. I don't recommend just taking somebody's word for it. If they can do billing, like do an interview with them, see what they're about, get a feel for their style, ask them questions about how often they bill, what their experience is with billing. Diet, if you're a dietitian, especially dietitian visits, um, and kind of go from there. You really want that detail-oriented person. I know for me, I am not detail-oriented at all. Um, people make fun of me for it because, like, <laughs> if I watch a movie, I literally can't tell you what happened. Like, I can't verbalize what I watched, and I also miss a lot of points. And again, that's probably partially ADHD. But 
you need somebody to balance you out, especially in a detail-oriented job like billing. Good to know. If you are a biller or you have a biller that you really like, send them our way so we can put together a resource of billers that understand the eating disorder space. Absolutely. And you can stay tuned for later this year when I get my shit together. I'm going to be building out an insurance course for dietitians to understand the basics. And then also at some point in time, I'm going to create a course where people can learn how to do billing so that they can go work for group practices and work a job that they love and support a cause that they love. So, oh, I love that. Love that so much. And since I verbalized it, that's accountability. So here yeah, we'll go. hold you to it. We'll, we'll check in in a few months. Awesome. Well, as we wrap up, if you could leave the listeners with one thing about taking insurance, what would it be? If you were able to start a business and have a successful business, whatever that means for you, you can tolerate and figure out insurance within its own limitations. Again, Michigan and Florida, sorry, people, there might be some backdoor workarounds, another topic for another day, but there are very real limitations with insurance and the things you can figure out. It's worth doing. You have the grit to be able to do this. And from a business standpoint, it's very profitable. I think that's, I mean, obviously that's not the main reason that we do it, but again, like we talked about in our episode, which was that one where we talked about profits, like you have to have a profit to have a business or else you're going to shut your business down. You're going to have to let go of your team. It's not good. Incredible advice. I hope everyone out there is listening. And if you hit a snag along the way or want someone to support you along the way, Hannah offers coaching and consultation for insurance. And I've worked with some of her clients more so on the business side of things, but they speak praises about her and like, she's fab. And clearly after this episode, so knowledgeable, you would definitely want her in your corner when navigating insurance. Thanks friend. Thanks for listening to the Weight Inclusive Innovators podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the pod on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review, share with a business bestie, check out our Instagram, Weight Inclusive Innovators, and check out our website at weightinclusiveinnovators.com. See you next week. Bye, everyone.